Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis. And on the show today, a fascinating, prolific, engaging freelance beer writer named Tara Nuren. It Starts With Beer is a member of the Hopped Up Network, and this episode is brought to you by Labyrinth Brewing Co., located in the historic district of Manchester, Connecticut. They keep a diverse selection of beer styles on tap, as well as a healthy selection of Connecticut-made hard ciders. Their tap room is open seven days a week, and you can find their cans in package stores across the state. Your journey begins here. For more information, visit www.lbc.beer. I've been reading Tara Nuren's in-depth beer writing on Forbes.com for a while now, and she's done television work, and she's written for many other publications, including All About Beer, Draft Magazine, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. She's got a new book in the works on women in beer history, and she's also an educator and speaker. Stay tuned after our conversation for the after party when I wrestle with the complicated feelings that this very interview prompted. But first, my conversation with Tara Nuren. Let's listen in. Hey, Tara, how you doing? Hi, Will. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to talk to you because, well, actually, I've been referring to your work since the podcast uh, began, and I'm a, a fan of your work. I think I, I really appreciate and uh, admire your um, ability to be a uh, you know freelance and and uh, being able to you know work with many different um, uh, organizations to get your beer writing across. And I and I and I really like your writing a lot. Thanks. We'll start off with a little bit with with your writing. Your can you think back to your earliest stories that you were writing about beer (laughs) what was the focus back then you know what that's a really good question i don't think i've been asked that before yeah you know it's evolved a lot over time i've been writing primarily about beer for about 15 years so you know there have been times when i've done reviews more than other things um but these days i don't really do reviews at all I know that a focus of mine back in the day was to, (laughs) not everyone's going to take super kindly to this, but poke holes a little bit in some of this, um, I don't know, wall of silence, wall of boosterism that surrounded craft beer at the time. Um, back, Back when I started, nobody was really writing anything critical about the industry. Um, it was very, like I said, there was a lot of boosterism. And and that's great, but nothing's perfect, including the craft beer industry. And, you know, I saw that there were real stories to be told. And um, so my first big story that I remember writing and being really proud of was the fact that Philly Beer Week, which um, was the first beer week in the world, there were a lot of complaints about it. Timing, the fact that local beers got kicked off 
you know, the taps for a couple months while we had all these amazing beers come in from around the world, et cetera. And I wrote that story and it was like, oh my God, you criticized the beer industry. But um, uh, other people, I'm not saying that they followed because I did that, but beer media is very different now since then. I, I can totally understand that. I mean, I think there's there, there was this idea that you had to be an advocate not just for the people who are making the beer, but the people who are drinking the beer, the people who are setting up festivals and that kind of thing. But uh, the idea is that you can also be critical of something that you love. That's so true. And it's really interesting to me when we beer writers get together and talk about that. You know, where's the balance? Um, are we benefiting the industry by criticizing it um and you know you and it, it makes sense chronologically how sort of beer media has evolved even just going back to say 2005 when i really started i mean we had to explain so much about what beer was craft beer was and and really sell people on it so the advocacy you know was kind of really needed at the time and now not quite so much because people at least know what it is. That's when I started my newspaper column about beer. And for me, it was after reading Garrett Oliver's Brewmaster's Table. And that's what convinced me to say, uh, there are so many stories here about beer and it doesn't have to just be about what it tastes like. So what have you struggled with this question over your career? How much do I advocate versus how much do I call it like I see it? No, I haven't struggled because I have not, <laughs> I have not been calling it like I see it. Uh, oh, I've been, okay. I've been an advocate uh, for the most part. And, you know, it's, and, and, and that's because I just made that choice early on. I needed to kind of set myself up as someone who was going to tell stories and was not, you know, I'd come from a hard news background. And I think that's what I just dis disliked about mm -hmm. covering local news. It was find the dirt, find what's wrong, yeah. find who's, you know, being crooked. And absolutely, I see that from a reader's perspective why you need it. I just wasn't good at being that hard-nosed about mm -hmm. things. And I felt, you know, I would write about people who would be accused of something and feel lousy all day mm. when I knew that my headline was about this person who'd been arrested for this thing because I, all I worried about was, well, what if we're wrong, you know? Yeah. And I don't know what that has to do with beer so much as for me to say, like early on, if I said, uh, you know, this, this brewery stinks, <laughs> I just didn't have it in me. I'd, I'd say, well, I'm just not going to write about them or I'm going to be, you know, lighthearted about it. So, yeah, I, I am not. I, I, and one of the other reasons why I, I really admire your work, you tell it like it is. Thank you. And and I appreciate, you know, your decision to tell the positive stories, too, because, you know, coming from hard news, the everyone's, well, before fake media was such a <laughs> trending hashtag, sure. fake news, you know, everybody always complained that, oh, the media always tells the bad news. There's never any good news. And there's plenty of good news to talk about. And so we do need, you know, whether it's beer coverage or anything else, need people like you to tell the stories about the people and to, to tell those uplifting stories because there, there absolutely, obviously, is a lot of 
you know, a lot more good in the industry than bad. What I've found now, though, is a new angle, which is this podcast, which allows me to talk to other people who can tell it like it is. <laughs> therefore, by, by proxy, I'm really uh, back to being a hard news journalist. I just turned the mic over to them. <laughs> okay, so early on, you know, in 2005, you were kind of just explaining this is what a stout is, and this is what a, you know, a tasting is, this is what a flight is. Well, you know, say even 10 years later, pretty much everybody knew what that stuff was. And you really started really uh, showing that beer has an interplay with culture and culture has an interplay with beer. And if we're going to look at culture with a, with a, um, a firm uh, glance and we're, and we're not going to just uh, sugarcoat anything, why not with beer? How did you start evolving uh, your writing so that it went beyond just what was in the glass? Another good question. Uh, it definitely wasn't conscious. And as I was listening to you describe that trajectory, I was thinking, ah, oh, is that how that happened? <laughs> I wasn't aware. <laughs> From what I can tell, it seems like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it was about five years ago-ish that I started writing for Forbes. Yes. So, you know, obviously everything I write for Forbes has, well, not obviously, not everybody writes in the business sections. Everything I write for Forbes has to have some sort of business angle. And that's very widely interpreted. I, I write a lot of policy stories that I interpret as business. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's beer playing itself out in real life. Um, you know, I'm never for Forbes writing, this is a stout, this is the glassware to use. And, you know, I've said for a long time, I kind of joke about it, but it's true that I am more interested in the story than the liquid. Mm. So, you know, I, I enjoy explaining what a stout is. I love drinking stouts mm -hmm. <laughs> while we're on the subject. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is more interesting to me um, to sort of explore the interplay between people and the liquid than really kind of breaking down what the liquid is itself, if that makes any sense. It does, because in the end, all stories should be about people, whether it's about sports or whether it's about money. There are people, you've got a character, you've got the readership, you know, uh, engaged. And there are so many stories to tell that if you're just going to do it in the abstract, I mean, then, it, you know, there might be an audience for it, but it certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't be part of the audience unless there's a person connected to it. Well, and you know, um, while we're still talking about beer media, it, it's frustrating to me and people who share my interests in beer writing that that's not what editors are looking for these days. I mean, try writing some like beer and culture story for, I don't know, pick a men's magazine or pick almost any magazine and and they don't really care right now. They just want 10, 10 beers you need to try this summer. Ah. Eight non-alcoholic beers that don't suck. You know what I mean? The listicle. The listicle. It's hard. So it's really, really hard to get those interesting stories that you and I like to write, you know, looking behind, looking underneath the glass, you know, mm -hmm. into the glass. It's hard to get those stories out these days. The long reads. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I, I wonder if it's because people still see beer as a, a frivolous thing, 
which uh, it certainly could be for some people, but it's one of those uh, optical illusions where the the more you look at it, the the more there is to see. And the more that you get involved in the, the scene, the world of it, the, all these other avenues start to branch out. And you're just like, oh, we, I could cover that. I could cover that. I could cover that. Well, there was a um, conference, uh, a virtual conference I attended last week. Um, it was sponsored by the uh, the Bruseum yes. in Chicago. Beer, you know about their culture, right? I talked to somebody who spoke at it uh, with Al Sharpton and Garrett Oliver, mm-hmm. the author of Beer and Racism. So I, yep. I I didn't attend, but I heard it was you know pretty amazing. Uh, did you, you cover that as well? I saw. I did. I, I wrote a preview and I attended as much of it as I could. And um, that was, I feel, potentially a new frontier in talking about beer, learning about beer, because it, you know, there were absolutely brewers. I mean, Mitch Steele, um, you know, who got famous at Stone was one of the panelists. And as you said, Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn. Um, but just academics and professors and journalists and historians and librarians just pulling out so many different threads of exactly what we're talking about, how beer does fit into culture, both past and present. And it was fascinating. I bet. <laughs> I bet. I mean, I think that's one of those things that people also do in other pursuits of uh, music, for example, or, or science, where there may be the, the top headline stuff. But when you're into it, you want to know all of its history, and you want to know all the little permutations that that go with it as well. What what uh, what what really stood out from you the, uh, after observing it or taking part in some of it uh, that that you walked away with uh, after after this year? Don't get me started because I could talk <laughs> for so long about every one of the panels I attended. But what my overall what most impressed me overall other than just the incredible speakers that Liz, the executive director of the Bruseum, was able to line up. Mm. Um, it is that beer scholarship is a thing now. And that's what I focused on in my Forbes story. You know, back when I started writing, as you were saying, back when Liz started um, in the curatorial profession, nobody wanted to let her talk about beer in academia and in, in museums and in institutions and now there are people getting their doctorates <sighs> writing you know dissertations all over the world in all aspects of beer because there is so much that you can use like you can use beer as a lens to almost anything well and that's what i was going to try to see if you could answer and you did before I asked which is why why is beer this this uh, portal um, why because it is so broad and it is uh, does touch so many lives it's cross cultural it is cross economic but you wouldn't know that oftentimes you almost have to do a little bit of digging because the way advertisers put it or the way the casual observer would would see it it, it seems like it's just bearded white dudes you know, trying to find the latest hazy. Uh, it's it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. lot more than that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you, you, you touch a lot of, on women in beer. Of course, that's been something that uh, you've been writing about um, and you've written about the Me Too impact on beer. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and I'd like to, to see where that intersects with your 
book project that you're working on. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I can tell you so much about that that I really want you to cut me off when I'm talking too much. Oh, yeah. There's a little <laughs> bell that goes off. So okay, good. You'll, you'll hear it. Almost everything we've been talking about for the past few minutes is sort of the raison d'etre of the book mm. or part of the part of the raison d'etre of the book. Um, so the book is it's the first book that exclusively looks at exclusively chronicles the history of women in beer. And I imagine most people listening to your podcast at this point know the the you know, women were the first brewers, blah, blah, blah. But that might be kind of all they know. And it's, it's true. I mean, in practically every major society, women were the first brewers, because and this touches on to why beer is so important, because civilizations before ours, like drank beer more than anything else, mm. morning, noon and night, everywhere in church and court, it, it, like, no matter what people were doing, they were drinking small beer sometimes, mm -hmm. big beer other times. And um, anytime that it became profitable or the Protestant or Catholic church got nervous or capitalism started to form, men started taking over brewing and women lost what little hold they had on it. And, um, you know, slipped further and further down into the dregs of society. I hope that's not on PC to say dregs of society. Um, but it's 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 astounding how often that plays out. Um, so that's what I look at in the book. From from what you, you know, you've researched, was this a, a clean transition? One day men just said, oh, no, you can make money off of that. OK, uh, you're relieved. And now we're brewing. Did it just happen overnight or was this over generations? Because, yes, absolutely, I, I kind of picture the Revolutionary War era. There was still the English alewife and yep. um, it was it was like food. So it was like, you know, who was cooking the food and who was, who was making the beer is going to be the same yep. person. Did this – was there some sort of um, – uh, lightning strike that hit where it was like okay now it's dude time or was it uh what what what, now what it's dude time what, that's hilarious. what Sorry, went, that, that well that that's my new book that i'm going to write in response to your book <laughs> you better not <laughs> now it's dude time um that's all right i, I can self-publish it'll be out tomorrow no um the i guess my, my point is what was in place uh, what was was put in place to make that transition happen where we don't think of women as brewers as often um, I have to keep biting my tongue from talent from saying awesome question every time you ask a question that I love that question. Um, no, I mean, obviously, with societal change, nothing happens overnight. Usually it was a couple generations or, you know, a period of a couple hundred years, depending. Um, I would say that if you wanted to point to one thing um, one John, I can say, because I'm in Philly. Um, <laughs> one thing that did most clearly pivot beer from women to men was the introduction and the widespread use of hops. Oh. I mean, that took place over a couple hundred years, first on mainland Europe, and then in the British Isles, and then it kind of started happening all over again with the American colonists. Um but you can kind of point to a before hops and an after hops. 
Hmm. So what was the, what what about hops meant that men were going to now take a bigger role? So depending on time and place, as with anything, the answer varies. But if you want to just, you know, for a simplistic answer, for an umbrella answer, you could say that hops allowed brewers to preserve beer longer or preserve it at all and thus sell it farther and farther away from its source. Mm -hmm. So beer could become a much more profitable commodity. Whereas women, when women were brewing beer, it would be for their household. And then they'd sell a little bit here and there to their local townspeople. If they had a lot, they could go sell it in the marketplace, but you had to drink it right away because there was no, nothing to preserve it. So you couldn't send it very far away. So when you could start, storing and shipping beer longer and farther, women didn't have the kind of capital that was needed to develop bigger breweries, you know, contract with ship captains, um, sell it abroad, that kind of thing. Got it. So then it became uh, a commodity versus just uh, foodstuff. Uh, exactly. And yes. Is that what Forbes would have me say? <laughs> That's, I kind of want to steal that. It's, it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. We're all a community. That that's excellent. That was an excellent synopsis because I um, I can now picture it. I, I kind of just see that you know um, woman uh, working on her beer, giving it to the locals, and then you know over time her great grandson is now going. Uh, yeah, I'm going to use you know great grandma's recipe and make some hard cold cash. Yeah. Um, and it's just another example. And I, I won't, you know, get on a pedestal or anything and, and be all like smashing feminism down your listeners throats. But, you know, you can see over and over in society that pretty much whenever something when money gets involved with something, and or if it becomes professionalized, that spells bad news for women. Gotcha. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I don't I think that's just, you know, basic fact. And I guess if people are offended by that, then they don't quite understand how history, how history mm -hmm. works or how capitalism works. Um, and, the, you know, n now, of course, we, we, we can look at it, you know, and saying, well, you know, anyone, if they want to, can make money off of beer. So why are we looking back at the past? It's all over now. Well, clearly, that's informing a lot of things that are going on currently when it comes to women stepping up and playing a big, bigger role in, uh, in the beer world. When you talked about the characters in this story, uh, the, the people in this, uh, in this history, one that you had mentioned to me prior was a woman named Nancy Crosby. Yeah. And this, you know, I'm, I live in Connecticut and I know she has a Connecticut connection. Can you tell me a little bit about Nancy Crosby? Yes, I would love to. Not nearly enough people know how important Nancy Crosby was to beer now, craft beer. So um, a couple of her claims. Well, so Nancy um, was co-owner of a very well-known homebrew shop, which started in Connecticut and then moved to a town by the same name in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, Ooh, okay. And uh, Crosby and Baker was the name of the homebrew shop, and they they were powerful. Uh, this would be in the early seventies. Uh, yeah, I think the shop. Sorry, I 
didn't brush up on my notes. Oh, that's quite but, right. I was uh, I I was cheated a little bit, and I was looking at um, some writing about her too. But I just think I remember remember sometime in the seventies, just for perspective. Yeah, and you're right, and I'm glad you brought that up, and that is important for what I'm about to say, which you know what I'm about to say. Um, if it weren't for Nancy and um, her partner in the business and one other guy homebrewing might not have become legalized when it did. She was very instrumental in getting the bill introduced into Congress that legalized homebrewing for the first time since before prohibition. And um, as we know, Jimmy Carter signed it and then um, it became legal to homebrew Mm -hmm. in the beginning of 1979. That's when it was implemented. Um, So she's very important for that reason. And what I didn't know until I started researching the book is that she and her partner are also behind the BJCP. Mm. They were the ones who started categorizing after Michael Jackson Mm -hmm. and alongside started categorizing styles and standardizing them so that they could create categories to judge homebrew competitions and people would know what category to enter um, with their beer and um, they were the ones who developed the exam and basically created the, the BJCP, the beer, beer judge certification program. Yeah, it's, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, your book and I think that it's coming at a, at a time when people need to know that you know beer is more diverse than it, than it appears. There's a reason why it's not as diverse as it could be. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the Me Too impact on beer? I don't, you know, I don't think it's a, you know, a dated term yet. I think it's one of those things where, you know, COVID has kind of uh, taken over our discussion of everything. But prior to that, we were certainly talking a lot about people's, you know, mistreatment of other people, in particular women. Uh, you've written a bit about that. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what role that's played? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So my view is that um, we weren't talking about anybody's mistreatment in the craft beer industry. And for as long as I've been reporting on women in the industry and as many women as I know in the industry, it wasn't until just a few years ago when people started to whisper off the record, hey, you know, I feel like I didn't get promoted at my brewery job because I'm a woman. Well, my last brewery job, my boss was really like a good old boy. And then there's a lot of discrimination against women that does happen in the industry and not just at the hands of good old boy distributors and not just at the hands of the contractor who comes to like take measurements for this or that. Mm. Um, it's happening within our own ranks and it's still only whispered about there's assault that happens, you know, between coworkers, there are rapes that happen. A boss rapes his employee and it just doesn't come out. People are afraid to talk about it because they don't want to be labeled as somebody who complains or somebody who's overly sensitive or, you know, somebody who exaggerates. And um, so I was hoping that with the Me Too movement, people would start to talk about it more in beer. And then, like you said, COVID happened and the topic just got annihilated. And um, I did write a story a couple months ago saying that I hope 
that with the the conversations that are beginning to flourish about overall inclusivity and equity and inclusion, well, yeah, and inclusion in beer that can also incorporate women's specific, you know, trials and tribulations as well. Like let's bring in diversity and inclusion officers to help people of color and people of different um, sexual like gender identifications and sexual preferences, like all feel comfortable and thrive. And let's not overlook women in that too. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it kind of goes back to what we were saying in the beginning where, you know, if you love something, you can be critical of it as well. And there's no reason for us to, to ignore something as important as that just because it doesn't fit into the narrative of, Hey, everybody in craft beer is so cool. That's so right. And you know, the overall problem that emerges or that, that's happening as we speak, I mean, each individual story is traumatizing and awful, but overall, like a lot of women are leaving the industry because of it. And we don't, we don't talk about that either. Mm. You know, there's like a, a, a trickle, I think that's becoming more of a flow. And, and I think if we don't address it now, we're going to lose a lot of good women. Right. And if, if they don't feel heard, if they don't feel appreciated, uh, yeah, they're, they're, we're going to lose them to wine and we, we can't have that. And spirits. And, and spirits. you know what? And, and, and marijuana. I think actually that's where we'll really lose them. How is the beer, craft beer situation with mistreatment of women different if at all, than say other industries like say the entertainment industry or the legal industry or the sports industry? Um, obviously there are a lot of parallels. Um, something that's different in beer is that you're dealing with alcohol all the time. Mm, yeah. So, you know, say you're a female sales rep, you go out to do a promo and you know, maybe you're at a sports bar late at night and like you're around a bunch of drunk yahoos who are like saying dumb stuff mm -hmm. and maybe touching you inappropriately. And then you go back to your all male brewery and look around for somebody to complain about it to. And nobody gives you credit for what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that. Um, there is the fact that it is so male dominated still. Um, and all up and down the industry, like you might say, well, entertainment has mostly men at the top, but they're women all up and down. Hopefully they'd be able to find an ally. Sports, I guess, is probably much more male dominated mm. up and down than, um, than entertainment is. Mm. So those are some reasons. And you, I think, you know, you really touched on something important, like, oh, everybody in beer is so cool. We're all this big community. And um, yeah, it is like that to an extent. And I think back in the day before it got so big, it was more like that. But, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who work in brewing and, and in adjacent adjacent industries. And um, not everybody's cool. <laughs> you <laughs> <That's> know, <laughs> I understand. So help, help me live vicariously through you a little bit here. Tell me some of the, the bigger perks uh or most rewarding <laughs> rewarding um parts of of being an independent journalist oh you're gonna make everyone hate me <laughs> now that, that 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 was not my goal but if you uh draw the ire that's on you 
Well, yeah. Um, I get to go on a lot of really cool trips. Mm-hmm. I have packages of alcohol show up at my house every day. <laughs> some I'm expecting, some unannounced. So, like, every day is Christmas or you know, insert your favorite present giving holiday. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, I get a lot of opportunity. I get access to a lot of really amazing people. Okay. Let's focus on this because it's less like materialistic and, and really honestly rewarding. Like for a couple days ago, um, I was on a virtual, I was doing a virtual tasting led by John Mallett at Bell's. He's been a director of operations at Bell's forever. And he's a freaking genius Mm. and so nice and so funny. And he was leading a very small handpicked group of journalists through a um, very detailed tasting of Bell's Two Hearted, which as you know, has been rated the best beer in the world a couple of times. I don't know. Most people don't get to do that. Um, No, they don't. And so I just really appreciated the opportunity to be that close to like somebody as an example. I mean, this happen type of thing happens all the time, but like in this example, just somebody I find so awe inspiring and who can like teach me so much that I'm just constantly um, being able to have really, really deep, interesting intelligent conversations with people who are very intelligent, very deep, very knowledgeable. And I feel super lucky about that. Well, what about uh, travel? You had mentioned that you've been around. <laughs> where, where have you gone that you really loved and where would where have you not gone that you would love to go? Oh, uh, I've been to a lot of places, both for beer and spirits, you know, because I do the spirits for, for Forbes. So um, one of the trips that stands out um, was a trip to China I took mm. um, for for a scotch, actually. Um, that was, like, ridiculously five-star all the way. <laughs> yeah, the spirits companies have more money to spend. They, they treat us They treat us a lot more lavishly <laughs> than the breweries do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's so many different things that are fun. Like, I get invited by a lot of... Um, tourism bureaus like i just got invited um the other day to nashville for like a, a pri- bring a friend and we'll send you to do whatever you want in nashville for four days or whatever wow um um, um as far as brewing goes let's see well i've um never been to um west Vlaterin, which mm-hmm. i need to and it turns out that I was staying for three weeks in Belgium with a dude many years ago, like super duper close to there. And I didn't even know it. <laughs> it's okay. like the regret of my life. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> that, you're lucky if that's a, your biggest regret. <laughs> <laughs> One of. Um, I'd really like to go to Iceland and check out everything there. But, you know, some breweries there. You know, one trip that was unique that um, is kind of beer adjacent, I went to Finland, um, I guess a year ago, and learned a lot about sati. Oh, what's like, I, I don't know what that is, I don't think. Oh, sati. So sati is Finland's ancient version of an 
alcoholic beverage that's hard to classify. Okay. <laughs> sure. You know, like you think of farmhouse ales, for instance. Well, like in Northern Europe, you know, everybody in the, and Sati's from kind of um, the Iron Age, right? So oh. we're talking, mm, let's just go with like 500 years-ish mm -hmm. um, before Common Era and then into Common Era. You know, everybody in their little towns and villages would brew their own versions of alcohol, right? And sati was what they called it in Finland. Um, and sati was unique in that it's very high in alcohol. Um, they use a lot of um, like juniper instead of hops. Okay. And they also, back in the day at least, would heat up the water with hot stones instead mm. of boiling it because they didn't know how to do that. Right. Figured <laughs> um, it out. And so it disappeared for hundreds of years, but people are bringing it back a little bit, you know, as we see around in different parts of the world, different countries bringing back their historic drinks. And uh, so Sati is a fun one. <laughs> it tastes good. No, not necessarily. No, okay. <laughs> you know what? That, that's not important. You, you know, it's all about food. Not important. Um, what is fun about Sati, though, is have you ever been to Finland or Sweden? Do you know anything about I haven't about the been culture? to Scandinavia at all, I'm afraid, no. So everybody loves their saunas, their saunas. Yes, right? yes, yes. Yeah, because it's so freaking cold. So <laughs> what you do, what I got to do, I, I, corresponded with like the mother of contemporary sati in finland and i went out to her house and she's a blast and we spent the afternoon i've never met the woman in my life we spent the afternoon naked best way to get to know somebody <laughs> drinking her homemade sati out of um blanking on the name of harika these two handled wooden bowls and going in sauna and then running and jumping in the frigid lake behind her house and then coming out and drinking sati and then going back in the sauna. Oh, it was a blast. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it was great. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I'm hating you a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> I'm letting it happen. I'm, 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 I'm just letting it flow. <laughs> so... Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No. I was going to say, like, I have some stories like that in the book. I can't wait to 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 uh, to to, uh, to read about those. Now, <laughs> what categories of stories about beer are underexplored, and where is there room for pitching new ideas? Not that you would give away any good pitches. You're working on a story, you're brewing up a story, or something like that. But <laughs> where where is there room to explore? Because you know, we, we both know that beer is this, you know, deep well. And while it seems like everything's been explored, there, there must be something that you're curious about that you could say, oh, yeah, we need to go deeper into that direction. The topic that comes to mind as you ask that is it, it goes back to diversity. And um, the more Black-owned breweries I get introduced to, the more that pop up and the more organizations that pop up within the African-American community around beer are they're taking beer, not everybody, but a lot are taking beer in a place it's never been before culturally, you know, like I had a case, I had reason to go look at a few websites today of some black owned breweries. And I was looking at like 
the, the their Instagram feeds and the clothes and the type of music they were showing and selling and talking about. And it's very different from like crunchy tree hugger dude, you know, <laughs> yes, that's for sure. who started it. And um, it's cool. It totally breaks like the the I don't know what a lot of more traditional longer drinking craft beer people think of when we think of the industry and here is this groundswell of new people who are infusing like other cultures other american cultures forget foreign cultures like we can talk about that too but infusing totally new culture into it and it's cool because it's like i'm still not used to it so it's still like fun and surprising for me to see like a hip-hop vibe you know on a brewery website and i think there's a lot of that to talk about and like see where people are want to take that and like how who they bring in because they're going in that direction and how that changes craft beer and the conception of it and the and the anything else that goes along with it the john the whole john the whole the whole john <laughs> that you're right it, it it's opening up a whole new chance for other people to be creative within that space and yeah. it, it for for people who've been covering beer for a while it's a nice refreshment refreshing change for sure yes yeah, that's a good way to encapsulate that. Yep. I'm excited to read more about it and, and hopefully write more about it. So what else do you have on the horizon? Huh. Well, um, I just feel like I'm playing so much catch up all the time lately um, because the book is taking up a lot of time. But I am doing a bunch of um, speaking and you know, I'm doing a lot with conferences coming up. So a couple things of note, if you don't mind. Um, oh, sure. Go right ahead. I'm going to be emceeing the um, Craft Beverage Expo on um, December 2nd and 3rd. And I'll be interviewing Natalie Chalurzo from Russian River for that, as well as hosting my own panel about um, how to get free press mm. as a small beverage producer. I will be joined by a couple of my colleagues on December 14th as one of Andrew, you know, I've never said his last name out loud, Copeland, Copeland, I don't know, the uh, <laughs> craft beer professionals Facebook guy. Ah. He's got tens of thousands of craft beer professionals on his page and he hosts all these conferences now. So a couple of my colleagues and I will be talking about the myth that everybody is getting drunk off their face all the time during COVID. <laughs> I read your article about that recently, or an article about that, I thought. Um, yes. Now, where, where is that going to be? Uh, well, so that's online. That is, yeah, so they're both virtual. The Craft Beer Expo, Craft Beverage Expo, sorry, is open to anybody for a fee. Well, some of it's free. Some of the panels are not free. The um, Craft Beer Professionals Conference is online if you are a member of the Facebook page, and it's easy to get on. So Craft Beer Professionals, just look at the Facebook page and ask to join. So that's free. And then um, one thing that's exciting is 
at least through the holiday season and probably into the next year, I'm helping a very good friend of mine pivot in an amazing way. Sorry, I still like the word pivot. I'm going to still use it. It's one of 2020's <laughs> bigger words. That and yeah. Zoom, I think. She and her husband run these unbelievable beer, wine, and spirits tours through Europe and California, different parts of the country. They're called Bon Beer Voyage. Mm. And um, because nobody can travel this year, they've pivoted to leading all kinds of beer classes online. And so because companies and organizations can't host, you know, their usual end of year holiday party, they are buying up these classes like crazy. So after we hang up, actually, I got to jump on um, a beer and chocolate virtual class mm, that they're cool. leading because that's the kind of thing I'll be doing for them. So that is available if you don't mind the plug. They're awesome. They're a lot of fun. I'm fun when I lead classes. So that's a good present. Excellent. Um, if you need something. Well, I, it's been a deep pleasure to speak with you. I knew it that it would be. And uh, I just uh, am looking forward to your book. And I would love to uh, see your um, speaking engagements sometime and uh, work with you again in any capacity. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Will. This was one of the much more fun. All my conversations about beer are fun. This one was particularly fun. My thanks to Tara Nuren. You can find her work on www.eyesontheworld.us and follow her on Twitter and Instagram. She's at Tara N-U-R-I-N. Welcome to the after party. Grab a seat on the faux bear rug and have another beer. I'm having another Firefly Hollow brewing beer this week. Uh, it's called Glow. It's a New England IPA, which is odd for me because I am so cool and malt forward, but uh, I really like this one. It's got more bite than most, kind of a grapefruit tangerine thing going on, but it's mellow on the finish for sure. I'm digging it. I had a great time talking with Tara, and I gotta say, I'm still processing the feelings that this interview brought up about my career. I don't know if you were paying attention, but at one point I had to admit that I wasn't telling it like it is in my reporting, which I stand by that. I mean, I can also probably give it more context. I certainly do tell the truth when I write. I'm a columnist, so, you know, my beer snob column in the Republican American is really, you know, more about me and my thoughts and my feelings as it relates to my subjects and, you know, the people that I meet along the way when I write about beer. But, you know, when I think about someone like Tara who has the freedom and skill to pursue beer stories around the world, I got to thinking about what would have happened if, you know, my career had taken a different turn. I was a, you know, full-time newspaper journalist for just a few years, and I decided I didn't want to do it anymore, and I wanted to become a teacher. 
And I'm happy that I'm a teacher, but, you know, since I started writing around the same time about beer that Tara did, I wonder if, you know, I just made some different choices, if I wouldn't also be traveling the world and running naked with my subjects and, you know, getting giant packages of beer on my front steps. I can't, I can't look back. I gotta say, you know, the choices I made were mine and I'm happy to have a column and I'm happy that it's a more of an advocacy kind of role. But uh, it sure would be kind of cool to, you know, have the access that Tara has. And so I'm, you know, not gonna be jealous. I'm going to be grateful that I had a chance to talk to her and, and I hope that we get a chance to talk again. You know, this podcast allows me to get glimpses into people's lives and, you know, speak with them candidly about things. And so I'm going to take solace in that and just be very happy with with the way things are going. So, all right. Thank you for listening to me. I feel a lot better about all that. Uh, locally here in Connecticut, new breweries continue to be popping up. Uh, Clock Town Brewing in Thomaston. Just opened up, looks nice, haven't been. And about a month uh, in Torrington, looks like there's going to be a beautiful renovated old space, much like Clocktown. But uh, this one's going to be called Bad Dog Brewing. And they spent uh, close to a million dollars, the owner did, on the firehouse that it used to be in. So very psyched for that one because it'll be very close to me got some good episodes coming up, including an interview with podcaster Tony Russo of the Beer with Strangers podcast. We're going to be speaking with writer Lucy Korn all the way in South Africa. And I've got A.K. Kieran's of 16-Ounce Canvas podcast. So follow, subscribe, stay tuned, support. Uh, shoot me an email. If you want to get in touch, I'm at beer.snob at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at beersnobrights. My website is beersnobrights.com. Until next time, sip well. One, two, three, four.